doctrine of Anatan. <clears throat> I don't really don't like words like doctrine. It makes it sound so theoretical, doesn't it? Because actually, again, this is a very practical teaching, as I was saying the other day. But before that, and I don't know if anybody's done this to you yet, and even if they have, I'm going to do it to you again. <laughs> I'm going to read you the Metta Sutta, which is the primary um, text, really, which informs this approach. Now, the Metta Sutta, and you'll find a copy of this in the library, the Metta Sutta, I'll drag it out and put a copy up here so you can have a look at it, it comes out of a collection of Pali texts which is known as the Sutta Nipata which actually is in the fifth of the Nikayas, which is the, the smallest section of miscellaneous works. Um, this is probably one of the oldest elements of the Pali canon, as far as we can tell. And the Metta Sutta itself is very, very ancient. Um, in Sri Lanka, it's common every morning for all the children in schools to recite the Metta Sutta together, in Pali and in Sinhalese as well. Uh, which is a bit nicer than the kind of Lord's Prayer that we have in England. <laughs> okay, it's quite short, but uh, let, me, let, let me just read it to you. He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to attain that calm state, Nibbana, should act thus. He should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble. Contented, easily supported, with few duties of light livelihood, with senses calm, discreet, not impudent, not greedily attached to families. He should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise men might censure him. May all beings be happy and secure. May their hearts be wholesome. Whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, Tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another, not despise any person whatsoever in any place. Let him not wish any harm to another out of anger or ill will. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so let him cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let his thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above, below and across, without any obstruction, without any hatred and without any enmity. Whether he stands, walks, sits or lies down, as long as he is awake, he should develop this form of mindfulness. They say this is the noblest way of living in this world. Not falling into wrong views, being virtuous and endowed with insight. By discarding attachment to sense desires, never again is he reborn. It's a pretty compelling story, isn't it, really? Um, and you will notice lots of the words that are used in that, such as mindfulness... Um, which is used, which is exactly the same words that's used in terms of insight there, that this is the noblest way, this is the way to Nibbana. Um, I don't think the Buddha is selling loving-kindness as a second-hand form. He's actually saying it's central to the practice, it's at the heart of the practice. 
However, this evening, and it will connect over the series of talks I'm giving you, um, this evening I want to look at anatta, saying what is reborn, the he or the she or the person who's doing all of this, who's engaged in developing loving kindness, when you're developing kindness towards yourself, sending metta towards yourself, what exactly is the nature of this self? That's having metta sent to it, that you're sending metta to when you're developing it towards others. Uh, now, one of the things that, again, I see often repeated in popular books on Buddhism is that this doctrine of anatta usually gets translated as no-self rather than as not-self. Now, just in that one consonant, T, hangs a lot here. Um, and I hopefully I'll explain that to you as we go along. But before I really delve into this, you need to understand a little bit about the kind of thing that was going on in India um, before the Buddha and during the time of the Buddha. And then you might understand what the Buddha is teaching and why he is teaching it. And this is... Not a historical digression, it's just to give you some background in which to place this particular teaching um, and its you know, kind of origin. At the time of the Buddha, there was a series of scriptures that was just starting to be composed. Um, these scriptures, all oral, just like the Buddhist tradition was itself, were known as Upanishads. Uh, some of you may have come across these, some of you might have even read them, some of them. And there's two very ancient ones which the Buddha was familiar with and being an educated man, probably of his time, he was familiar with these and he knew the kinds of doctrines that were pervaded in it and conveyed um, through these particular, what we now call texts, but of course weren't texts in those days, it was just an oral tradition. The central teaching of these texts was there was one thing in the universe... Uh, out of which everything was part of. And they called this Brahman. And within the individual, there was a part of Brahman, which was known as Atman, in Pali Atta, um, and which was within the individual. So there was a little bit of the ultimate within the individual. And this was their real, unchanging, pure self. It's usually described in terms of pure consciousness, that has no causes or conditions for its existence. It's aspatial and atemporal in its mode of being. The very thing that I've just uttered should, you know, for those of you familiar with Buddhist doctrines, uh, sort of send little shivers up the spine, because something that's unchanging is, of course, what the Buddha denies that there is any unchanging nature to the self. So let me just go through that very quickly again. That there is an unchanging, according to these Upanishads, self which is not dependent on causes and conditions for its existence. If it's not dependent on causes and conditions for its existence, it therefore will not change. What does this mean in reality? Okay, that's kind of the theoretical, kind of slightly intellectualised way of putting it. What it means is there's a something within you which is your real you, and it doesn't change. Bad news. 
Because if there is a, a real you within you that doesn't change, then nibbana and freedom is impossible from the Buddhist perspective. It is only because there is something which changes that we might as well bother doing what we're doing over this three-week period, you know, sitting and meditating and doing the practices. These are all founded on the idea of change. And you've probably often heard this. We even have it in our ordinary language. You know, I want to find my real self. Um, Actually, Catherine Mansfield, who's the novelist Catherine Mansfield, actually had a reflection about this once. She says, um, when I hear the words, look to thy true self, I'm rather perplexed because I feel like a concierge in a hotel with a myriad of guests. <laughs> yeah. In other words, which is the real self <laughs> out of all the various personas that we can have? Now, this is what it means in actuality is that the Buddha is denying there is any fixed component to you. Yeah. Now, you might like to have a fixed component if that fixed component was good. <laughs> Would you like a fixed component if it was bad? Because it means you couldn't change it. Now, this is what the Buddha is denying. I'm joking about it slightly here. Um, is the denial of any true self. Anything which is unchanging and doesn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence. There used to be a kind of birthday card, and I've sent it to quite a few of my friends, actually. I've sent it to a, a friend who had the same name of this. Um, it was Stanley. It was a little picture of this guy climbing up the Himalayas with a rucksack on and that, uh, looking for his true self. His name was Stanley. Stanley went to the Himalayas looking for his true self. And at the top of the mountain is standing this man in a pinstripe suit and glasses with a briefcase. <laughs> so don't go looking for your real self. <laughs> so the real, the real self from the Buddha's perspective is an absolute fiction. And in a way, having no fixed and ultimate self, if you like, from in the Buddhist perspective, is the good news. Because if there is no fixed thing, then change is always possible. Now, littered throughout the scriptures of all of the traditions, I mean all of the traditions, are stories of wrongdoers. You know, there's a very famous one in the Pali Nikayas um, of a guy called Angulimala. He's probably the first serial killer. <laughs> he goes around killing peoples for their angulis, their fingers. <laughs> uh, and he's making a rosary out of them. And he's got 107. And if you don't know anything about Indian culture, you need 108 to make a full rosary. And, of course, who did he spy? He spies the Buddha walking down the road. Uh, so to get his, collect his last finger to make up his mala. But that aside, you've got lots of stories like this about people who are engaged in wrongdoing. Now, whether they actually existed or not is beside the point. The whole point about these stories is, in a kind of a moral efficacy, that change is always possible. If there is a no fixed ultimate self that is unchanging, then change, no matter what you've done, is possible. Now, even our penal systems in the West are often fixed on the idea of a culpability attached to a self. 
that the way you are, you're imprisoned, and often people are not let out, even if they have changed vastly over long periods of time in incarceration, um, then they're still held to be morally culpable in that sense because the culpability attaches to something unchanging there. So that's what's actually really going on. And that's a little bit about the, the kind of thumbnail sketch of what's going on in the Buddha's own period in India. So there's a lot of Indian thought around at this time fixing to this idea of an unchanging self. Now the Buddha says, first of all, he says, when I look for this unchanging self, I can't find it. Where is it? In other words, it's not accessible to experience. And again, this is why I don't like the word doctrine. Because what the Buddha is saying, if there is an unchanging self, if there is an unchanging reality to us, it ought to be somehow accessible to our experience. So there's an enormous empirical basis to Buddhist thought and practice is that really it's down to the authority of your own experience, whether you can find it or not. Now, the Buddha is saying, in my investigations, in my journey towards awakening, in the actual content of the awakening, I find that there is no fixed thing within my experience. Now, you heard me say earlier on, this doctrine often gets translated as... Anatman, which often means not-self, or anatta, not-self. And it often gets translated by this term, no-self. Now, let me take you back back to the time of the Buddha again. Because one thing that characterises the whole of Buddhism is that it's a middle way between extremes. It's a middle way between the extremes, for example, of asceticism, you know, yogic penances and austerities and all that stuff, and the household life. It's also an extreme. It's it's also a middle way between the extremes of eternalism and annihilationism. Now that is important because if we deny that there is any such thing as the self at all, no self, we fall into annihilationism. If we obviously go towards the Atman doctrine, the idea of a fixed, unchanging reality, then we go towards, of course, the eternalist um, doctrine. And Buddhism has always been an attempt through its whole history, from the time of the Buddha onwards, to steer this middle path between the Scylla and Charybdis of these two extremes views. These are literally that extreme views. In the beginning of the Diga Nikaya, which is the long discourses of the Buddha, you'll find um, an outline by the Buddha of 62 viewpoints uh, of his own time. And he outlines 62 philosophies. And they all break up into eternalist or nihilist uh, in, their, um, and in their philosophies. Also, one has to bear in mind, what is the Buddha trying to get us to investigate? Now, I want to get this back into practicalities here. He's trying to get us to investigate something. Basically, we can say that when we start to ask questions, and questions are the main way of obviously investigating, um, 
investigating our experience, investigating kind of issues in general, there are basically two ways of asking a question. There is the what is something. And that's the basic question that most people ask. What is something? Now, any of you who have read any Greek philosophy might have come across this. Because that's what Socrates is doing throughout um, his dialogues. He goes up to somebody like a lawyer and says, you're a lawyer, tell me what justice is. And, of course, the lawyer said, well, this is justice and this is justice. And Socrates goes to him, that's not answering my question. All you've done is given me examples. You haven't told me what justice is. In other words, what makes this example justice and this example justice and a further example and all the kinds of examples that the lawyer or whoever the specialist is can give. No wonder he got himself executed. (laughs) It was a real sort of pain in the bum to Athenian society, basically. (laughs) So he's asking all these questions because really what he wants to know is what is the essential nature of all of these things? What makes them all forms of justice? Now, transposing that... um, into questions about ourselves, what, you know, what is our nature? What are we? If we are asking that what is type questions, we're usually looking for something essential. What is the essential nature of you, I, and the other person? Are they essentially good? Are they essentially bad? Are they essentially stingy? Are they essentially generous? You know, what is the nature? What is the reality of this person? That is not the way the Buddha asks the question, by the way. The way that the Buddha asks the question is, how is it? In other words, he's asking a question about how it works. What is going on? If you like, that's a really good question for inquiry. What's going on? Now, the Buddha takes this doctrine, which I think, even despite its ancient Indian context... I think is still there even in Western thinking. What or who are we? What is my real self? What is my true nature? You can hear it put in all these kind of various ways, from New Ageism to the old-fashioned religions. Here, you know, what am I? Who am I? What is my real self? What is the unchanging reality about me? Well, that's not what the Buddha's doing. He's saying, a that cannot be found, and actually, I'm far more interesting interested in. What is this thing that we call a self in its workings? How does it work? So, we take a unitary phenomena. We have a word for it. We call it self, don't we? Um, Actually, and that poor little self that we have, um, it's very difficult to keep going, isn't it? It's really, really difficult. In English, it works really well. I often joke about this and say, you know, when you write, when I, I often have a board when I'm teaching, and I write the first person pronoun, I, on the board. Have you seen it? It's all lonely. It's all stick like, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that self, that lonely self, is very difficult to hold together yeah, and to be consistent about. It's very, very difficult, and it's such a struggle to keep that self in existence. Now, the Buddha's saying even that notion of trying to keep this thing unitary is false. He says, A, it doesn't exist, and B, it doesn't tell us how it works. 
at all. So he's inquiring into what is this phenomena that we call the self, and if it's there at all, how does it work? So instead of a unitary phenomena, what he gives us is a series of interdependent activities. In a way, the thing that you can say about the Buddha is he's the first process thinker. He's thinking in terms of process. Now, one of the things I'm very fond of saying, some of you will have heard me say this before, is that actually when you look at some of the ancient texts, when you certainly look at their translations into other languages, then more often or not, when we're dealing with the languages that have to deal with the self, Nibbana, Sangsara, and all of these things, then we're dealing primarily with verbs, actually, rather than nouns. And there's a big difference in that, because obviously verbs are naming processes. They're not naming things at all. So rather than a self, we've got a selfing. <laughs> rather than sangsara, we've got sangsaring. Rather than nibbana, we've got nibbanaing. It sounds ugly in English, but it's about the only way you can do it is actually to add a kind of process sound at the end of it um, to make it you know, reflect what's actually going on in the Pali and the Sanskrit much, much more accurately. So in other words, let's just take those two terms, which are often seen as Buddhist hell and Buddhist heaven. Aren't they? Sangsara is kind of Buddhist hell. Go round and round in circles until <laughs> you know, we get fed up. <laughs> and then there's the Buddhist... Well, we'll, we'll get quit sangsaraing, won't we? We'll quit sangsara the place called Sangsara, and we'll go to Nibbana. <laughs> yeah. And it's often still written like that slightly in some of the books, and it's getting better, um, but you still hear implications of that. You know, so Sangsara is one place, Nibbana is another. Sangsaraing and Nibbanaing are two different processes. That is what they are. So Sangsaraing is, is a process which is characterised by one thing, Dukkha. It's characterised by existential anguish, suffering, pain, anxiety, depression. All of these things. All of these things characterise sangsaring. It's the tone, if you like, of sangsaring. Sangsaring is founded on three unwholesome roots. The roots of greed, aversion and delusion. They are what keep sangsaring going. So they're the three unwholesome psychological conditions which are present in the mind, which if are at the forefront of the mind, will keep that process of sangsaring going. On the other hand, nibbanaing is the opposite to that. It's the process which is characterised by freedom and happiness as its two characteristics. It's dependent if you like, on the opposites of greed, aversion and delusion. It's founded on generosity, friendliness and insight into the way things are. It's founded on those. So there are two modes of being in the world. And if you read the Pali Suttas, for example, when the Buddha attains Nibbana, he doesn't pop off to Buddhist heaven. He teaches for 45 years from the Nibbana experience. 
And that's what they call nibbanaing in life. And then there's a parinibbana, which the Buddha refuses to talk about, which is the kind of end, you know, when death comes, of an awakened being. So these are verbs. And when we start to look at the self, we're looking at something which I would loosely translate as selfing. So it's not a question of, is there a self or isn't there a self? Again, the Buddha eschews those kind of questions. He refuses to answer those types of questions. Is there or isn't there? Actually, in English, in in the West, in logic, um, we actually have a term for this. This, It's called the law of non-contradiction. Aristotle founded this. The law of non-contradiction. Something is or it isn't. There's actually another term they use for this, actually, in, in Western logic as well, naming the same phenomena. They call it law of excluded middle. So there can't be a middle way in Western logic. Something is or it isn't. Yeah. So either there is a self or there isn't a self. Now, that's not the Buddha's inquiry whatsoever. The Buddha is saying there feels like, and we all know this, don't we? There feels like there is something a centre to ourselves. Yeah. You feel it, for example, in strong emotional reactions. You feel kind of the knot in the stomach when you get angry, or in the solar plexus when you get angry. You feel certain emotions very painfully, and they seem to attach to an eye. Also, language continuously reiterates it, you know, the way that we use language, particularly Western languages which work on a kind of subject and predicate basis. I am happy. Well, if there's happiness, there's got to be an I that it attaches to. I am sad. Well, again, there's got to be an I that it attaches to. Um, The Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein once said he thought the notion of the self was merely a grammatical error. (laughs) (laughs) The reason being, of course, that to make any sentence in most of our Western languages we actually have to have a subject and a predicate. However, we get terribly obsessed by this looking for this I, don't we? What is the real self that's feeling happy or sad or or whatever it is? We form other sentences in our languages, in our Western languages in particular, which have that subject-predicate form, yet we don't go around looking for the the subject. How about this one? It is raining. Where's the it? (laughs) Yet we get obsessed by this one element, if you like, that's being reiterated through grammar, it's being reiterated, in a sense, in our experience to a degree, yet seems to be unfindable when we actually look for it. Even the Scottish philosopher David Hume says, every time I look inside myself for a self, all I find is bundles of perceptions. That's all I find. I can't find a self. At all. So, you know, kind of Western philosophers got there quite a lot later than uh, what was going on in ancient India. So the Buddha is really the first person who's getting to think about ourselves in a different way, to relate to ourselves in a different way. In other words, as not being things. Really important to see that. In other words, we're not things. A self is like a thing. Yeah, and particularly it's a, if it's a thing that doesn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence. Well, what things can you think of that don't depend on thing, anything for its 
existence. Everything in the world appears to have this evanescent quality to it in that if the causes and conditions alter, the thing will change, including ourselves. One of the things that we most attach ourselves to is the notion of something unchanging. This, in a sense, is the obsession that runs through much of the thinking, both East and West. I wouldn't want to even make a distinction here. Most East and West. We're looking for something certain and unchanging in our experience. Something we can attach ourselves to that's not going to change. Why? Fear. Fear of change. Fear of the ultimate one, death. The big change that's going to come on everybody. So, you can see how the idea is consoling of a something that's not going to go out of existence within us. You know, this idea of the Atman, for example, you'll find in a very classic Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, for example, described by Krishna this way. If you think you kill somebody and you think you are killed, you're mistaken. Because the real self is neither produced nor destroyed. It goes on. You know, hence, reincarnation. Buddhism doesn't have reincarnation, it has rebirth which is quite, quite different. Reincarnation means the actual incarnation of the same thing. The same thing taking up another body, again and again and again, until finally moksha or release occurs. That's not Buddhism. That's not the Buddhist doctrine at all. You might want to ask me a question at the end, what is the Buddhist doctrine? Because <laughs> it's not an easily answered one. Um, but... We take this idea of this unitary phenomenon that appears to be there, reiterated by our languages, reiterated by sometimes some of our experiences, such as our strong emotions and that. The Buddha takes it and says, what are the minimum components that have to be there for us to talk about ourselves as being selves? These in Pali and Sanskrit, well, actually in Pali and Sanskrit are slightly different. In Pali they're called khandas, in Sanskrit, they're called skandhas, so you can see how closely they're related. Yeah. The word skanda or khanda means aggregate. It is what is aggregated together. You know, so, for example, the first one that the Buddha talks about, what's one of the minimal things that we have to talk about in relation to being a self at all, then he talks about something called rupakanda, you know, the khanda of form. All the things which are, if you like, material and substantial that we place together. So it would be, for example, tissue and bone and all the things that go out to make up our physical existence here. And the first thing he's saying about that, all that, that physical stuff is, is if you're trying to make that into yourself, well, he didn't say it quite this way, this is a more modern way, go and look in the mirror. Because it's not going to remain the same. It's going to change. For example, the ageing process. Physical form itself is changing. We cut ourselves, the skin ages, tissue is renewed, you know, all the sort of stuff even modern science will talk about. You know, the way we renew our skins and all this sort of thing, the way cells are renewed. Actually, what appears to be fairly solid is actually pretty changing. Most of the time, and as I say, if you want reiteration of this, look in the mirror, you know, day to day, and you will see change. 
going on here. So he's saying, really, this becomes what is called a skanda, which in a sense induces dukkha. Because if we grasp after our physical form, we're onto a loser. <laughs> yeah. And eventually, one day, the causes and conditions which sustain this physical body are going to change so radically, it's going to go out of existence um, and change completely. Yeah. That's, that's the big one. That's death, you know, when that happens. So don't attach yourself too much to the body as being self. Then what's the second condition that might go in to make up a self? Well, how about this one? Feeling. Don't get sentimental on me. It's nothing to do with emotion. Feeling here is mere sensation in Buddhist terminology. It's something called Vedana. So there's Vedana Kanda. Everything that can be collected in terms of our feelings. Well, actually, there's only three real things that can be collected in terms of our feelings here, uh, which is now immediate sensation. And here, if you like, it covers all of our sensations or all of our reactions towards sensation, which is either I like it, I dislike it, or I couldn't care less. <laughs> okay, technically it's talked about as being, you know, it's, it's like, dislike, or neither. Yeah. That covers all of our feelings. Now, as we probably know, our reactions to things in terms of contact and feeling towards things changes over the course of our lives things that we probably didn't like as children because you stick it in your mouth and you go like that probably with a refined palate you now like (laughs) you know this kind of thing Um, it's usually much to the annoyance of whoever you're with when you said when they say something like I thought you liked that and say no I don't (laughs) because it's changed so in other words over the course of our lifetime, feelings change. They don't remain the same. So if you're looking for some stability within that, again, you're onto a loser. Because it's changing, continuously. Elements will remain the same for a while, then something else will supplant it and change. So what you liked might have turned into, I couldn't care less, apathy towards it, or actual dislike. Something you disliked might have turned into apathy or something you now like. So nothing is remaining the same even within that kanda. So we have now form and feelings. Then we have something usually which is something in Pali which is called sanya which is usually badly translated simply as perception. And it is badly translated because it really should be a compound of perception discrimination. And discrimination, because the the job of sanya, I wouldn't go into the etymology of the word, but these words with the something nya type endings in them all have a compound which means to know something. So the job of sanya is to know and discriminate the world in a particular way. And so one of the functions within sanya is memory, for example, language. Um, There's a technical description of it within the psychological literature, which says that the job of sanya is to take an object and mark it for recognition. So, in other words, you know, what happens in terms of our discriminations? Well, generally, let's take a, um, an example of a lifespan uh, ending up in a disaster scenario. Um, you start off as a child 
with very little discrimination. Probably the only discrimination you really need is mum and food. <laughs> um, that's probably the... It widens out from there a little bit, doesn't it, really? Um, so you start off with a very narrow range of discrimination which widens out in the course of your life through education and the acquisition of language, um, and perhaps through education, you know, it spreads out. You, you get a wider sense of discrimination. You can look at a wood and see all the distinct trees in it, whereas before they were just trees, you know, things like that. Um, you can then move on in life, and as I say, ending up with a slightly disaster scenario, just to make a point here, is that later in life you can start to lose it all again. Uh, you could end up with something like some forms of senility, Alzheimer's. And what goes in those? Often the faculty of memory, and particularly short-term memory. Um, and what's important about this is memory is actually a lot about who and what you think you are. And actually the whole notion of a self is founded on memory. Yeah. That I can remember what I did say, 20 years ago. You know, might not be complete, but I have fragments of memories from 20 years ago. I might have even fragments of memories going right back to childhood. Yeah. Um, but I might not remember what I did last week. Yeah. So we have all these fragments of memory. Now, notice what I'm saying. They're fragments. But because I can remember 20 years ago, 10 weeks ago... 30 years ago, or whatever the length, time, length of time is, I still think it's the same person coming through. When memory is knocked out of the picture, people with these severe uh, degenerative illnesses and that often don't know who they are. They literally have no memory of themselves here within it. So as you can see, there's an awful lot founded. I could go on a lot, we could talk the whole evening just about Sanya in itself. But you can see there's an awful lot founded on this notion of being able to perceive, to discriminate, to remember, to use language, and all the faculties that we have, yet it's changing. Because I might, for example, forget something that I remembered a year ago and have it replaced with another memory. Or I might lose my faculties altogether. So there's nothing stable and fixed within this. It is all fluid. It is all flux. So actually, even this, this really important aspect here of our memories and our language, and that's changing, of course, isn't remaining the same. It's not remaining stable. Yeah? There is nothing within these three elements of the Kandas so far which is stable and is going to remain the same. Okay, what else would we like to include within ourselves? Well, I mean, in the Buddhist conception, there is something which is called sankharas or sanskaras. Uh, sankharas are really, uh, they're often translated as formations. Um, it's not very illuminating, that. Um, but what it really means here is they are effectively habits, some good, some bad, which are formed over the course of a lifetime, or if you take the traditional Buddhist perspective, lifetimes. Yeah. Now, these habits, or these sankharas, again, are not remaining the same. I mean, I hope you're getting the picture now, It's because it's a story that's running through all of these. You know, our habits are changing. In the Tibetan illustration, which often is depicted in the iconography, 
of what's called the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, there's an image of a potter representing this, who's moulding the pots and then collapsing them down and moulding them back up again. And that's, in a sense, what's implied by this is both forming something and then them being, in a sense, broken down and reformed, in a sense. That's, that's what we're doing with our habitual formations. You know, actually, habits are a really good indicator of who we think we are a lot of the time. You, know, if, you really feel this. If anybody comes up to you one day and says, you've got this really bad habit, and you go, me? That's the way I am, <laughs> or something of that sort. Because it actually really identifies as being strongly ourselves. You know, when I feel under attack... When somebody says a habit, you don't go something like, well, I just seem to have this rather kind of irritating thing that I do, but I could let it go if I wanted. <laughs> we don't do that, do we? We have this very strong notion is that our habits are what we are yeah, in some ways, and, and we guard them preciously. We attach ourselves to them, but they still don't remain the same. They change subtly over time. And so... That, if we attach ourselves to it, is going to change. And therefore, like all the other kandas before, we're going to find ourselves in a situation of, of dukkha, if we've attached ourselves to it. Yeah. People try to do this sort of thing. You know, for example, they try to repeat things. Have you noticed, you know, it's a bit like pop music. You, know, you listen to a record, once you really like it, you listen to it a second time, you really like it, and the third time, you really like it. But as the period goes on, <laughs> what actually happens is, actually the enjoyment starts to decrease until it becomes that irritating noise you can't get rid of out of your head. <laughs> it becomes that sort of thing. Um, because in a way, you cannot repeat and you cannot keep repeating uh, to get the same amount of pleasure out of something. And that's something, again, we're attaching ourselves to, the idea of wanting to repeat, keep doing the same thing. Uh, the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, uh, Kierkegaard actually... Uh, tried a little experiment once. He, he wrote it all up in a book called Repetition, um, which is wonderful. It's a great read if you've ever got he's, he's not difficult to read at all. But he did this little experiment. He said, I went to the Danish opera in Copenhagen and I saw a performance of Don Giovanni by Mozart. And he said, it was so good. I went back the next night and he said, I wanted to repeat the pleasure of it. So I went to exactly the same performance, had exactly the same to eat before I went to the, to the theatre again, as I had the previous night, put on exactly the same clothes, got exactly the same box, and I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that desperation to repeat, and don't we do that all the time? You know, there is a kind of myth within that you know, by repeating something, I'm going to get equally the same amount of pleasure, if not more, out of it. And so that is one of the habitual formations. We're addicted in certain ways. Um, and I'll examine that kind of bigger story with you as we go through. Here. Finally, there is consciousness. Vijnana. And what is the job of vijnana? Well, the job of vijnana is simply to know. However, consciousness in the Buddhist conception... And this predates probably the West conception, Western conception of consciousness in philosophy anyway, by approximately 2,400 years. Um, the Buddhist conception that the Buddha laid out is that consciousness is not a thing. It's a dependent arising. It arises in dependence on an object. 
You know, so in a sense, if you like, the world and consciousness arise together. There isn't a consciousness which is there waiting to perceive a world. Consciousness comes into being because it has an object. Yeah, it's linked very strongly to the object. And dependent particularly on the kind of factors that are involved depends on whether that consciousness is wholesome or unwholesome. What they call this is intentional consciousness. Intention being used in a slightly different way, just always aiming at an object. Now, if you listed, if I had, again, a, a chart here, and I wrote all these five things down, form, feelings, discriminations, perceptions, hab habits, basically, let's do shorthand here, and consciousness. Well, what does consciousness have as its objects? All of the above. That's what it has. So consciousness, again, is not a thing. It's a process. So because... All of the elements in the other four khandhas are changing, then the consciousness will change, dependent on the other four. So within none of these five factors, and this is then further explored in Buddhist thought, into a great treatise called the Abhidhamma, you know, where it's broken down into finer and finer elements here, then nothing within that bespeaks of an unchanging self. There is no unchanging self-nature. There is only a process which is based on those five things. Well, actually, really it's a kind of nominal entity that comes into being based on those five things which we call self. That is all. So in other words, when I say the word self, I'm really saying shorthand for form, feeling, discriminations, habits, unconsciousness. That's really all I'm saying. So it's not no self. It's not as if you suddenly go out of existence. It's what is not self. So form isn't self. Feelings are not self. Discriminations and perceptions are not self. The habit formations are not self. And consciousness is not self. Yet the five functioning together produce a nominal entity which we call self. So it's not as if suddenly you had a self and there it was gone. It's not like that. It's not like a conjuring trick where it suddenly disappears and you have a self-shaped hole in you <laughs> where the self used to be. What the Buddha has broken it down into is shown as that we are a process. Now, what does this all have to do with metta? Because I'm kind of running out of time here. Well, what it has to do with metta is that when we're directing metta towards ourselves for example, and towards the selves of others, we're not directing it at an entity which is unchanging. Yeah. When we're directing it towards ourselves, we're learning, if you like, to love the process. Because yeah. that process is going to contain wholesome elements within it and unwholesome elements. But it's like fully taking on board the whole package. What is there? Now, it's not like saying, well, I like the whole package, but I don't like my ears. <laughs> you know, it's not like, not like that. It's not singling out, well, I like the whole package, but not this bit. It's actually learning to accept, to respect, to learn to love who and what you are in your changing nature. This is what it is. Learning to deeply, deeply honour and respect. Because in learning to deeply honour and respect this, 
changing process with all of its foibles and its good parts as well, you can start to honour and respect those changing others, going back to the metasutta, whether they be long or tall or short or thin, whether you're sitting, lying, standing, it's a classic formulation, even as the Satipatthana suttas. Whatever posture you're in, you can honour and respect and love and generate wholesome feelings towards. It's not like saying, well, I like that person, but again, I don't like this bit about them. It's learning to see the whole process. And to know, of course, because it is a process, it will change and can change for the better. And it doesn't have to remain the same. So within the teaching of anatta, in a sense, again is implicitly, well, implicitly, explicitly, in the case of the metta-sutta, but even within that teaching, implicitly there is the teaching of care, respect, friendliness and kindliness to the what is going on. So it's like when you're meditating, you're not dividing yourself up into the bits I like and the bits I don't like. It's learning to accept the whole, to start from where you are. And to start from where you are is not being a no-self, and it's not being a self. It's being a not-self, in a way. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Or to appreciate that selfing process. Knowing, of course, and the kinds of things that we're doing that you can intervene in this process, because it is a process, seed causes and conditions, and therefore, thereby affect change in a direction that you want to take it, within it. So in a sense, what we have is a system, if you want to use a kind of systems theory thing. You don't have to account for consciousness outside of the system. You don't have to account for volition outside of the system. It's all taking place within the system, which is this selfing system. Gosh, that's a bit much to take on board at this time of night, isn't it? (laughs) But effectively, that is what the teaching of anatta is. And it's not an impractical teaching. It's a very practical teaching, because the Buddha in many, many texts, is really getting us to look at, and there's a little phrase he uses, which is to see this as not being I, me, or mine. And that's what you're breaking down. You're breaking down the tendency to polarise our experience in terms of this. Subject as opposed to object. Self as opposed to other. Self as opposed to world. As I say, it's a terribly isolated business being a self. Do you really want to be one? In that strong sense of it. Here, self also implies the egotism, the narcissism, which we spoke about the other day, of being that kind of self-saturated person. The self, as Iris Murdoch, the philosopher of novelist, once said, was like a great, big, fat, restless child. It was always demanding. It's an obfuscation of our vision as well. It obliterates our vision of being able to see what is going on. If it's sitting there in the centre of our experience, constantly having to be nurtured. I mean, I don't think you ever saw that film, what was it, The um, Little Shop of Horrors. Did you see that film? 
because I had a giant Venus fly, fly trap. You used to sing Feed Me. And kept you opening my mouth in it. And I always think of the self a bit like that, because it wants to be fed continuously, wants to be pampered, wants to be you know, applauded. And all of the things that we you know, value so much in our societies. You know, appreciated is the word, I think, one of the words. Now, I don't want to you know, condemn all of that, but what actually it's doing mostly is nurturing the ego. And ego here can be seen as a synonym for the self. I'll finish there. We can pick it up probably in one of the other talks later. But to kind of open it for questions if there is any at this stage. That's silence, do you have no? I have a question. <laughs> you, right towards the end, you said, and so we, we, can, we can plant seeds in these, um, um, we can choose to interfere. So mm. who chooses? It's not a who is choosing, well, choosing? there is choice within the system. There, I mean, this is very important. There's a word in Pali, which is the word that the, Pali, that the Buddha uses continuously. It can be translated as will, or it can be translated as volition. And this word is chetana. Chetana is within the system. So it is one of the mental factors which is within the system of selfing yeah, that we have there. Now, we can, as we know, we can use our wills to foster, pamper our ego, engage in unwholesome acts, but we can also direct our will towards the wholesome. Yeah. That the will itself can be directed itself by other various mental factors in cooperation with the mental factor which we call will. Yeah. It's a complex system. I've only kind of given you a real thumbnail sketch of this this evening. It's a really complex system with Lots and lots of mental factors and 121 forms of consciousness and all this sort of stuff that's talked about, if you really want to analyse it. And it's saying all of this can be experienced. And this is the important part about it. Hopefully, hopefully you haven't just heard this as a kind of a theoretical talk this evening, because there's real practical stuff. What the Buddha is saying, all of this, for example, those five aggregates, we can experience. We can see all of them. We can see them going on. Yeah? We can see consciousness arise, we can see our feeling. You, you can, in fact, that's one of the most basic Vipassana meditations. Actually looking what, what the response is to physical and mental <coughs> phenomena in terms of its feeling tone. Do I like it? Do I dislike it? Or is it neither? Yeah. And you can look at the very same sensation and you'll see often that you're even within a very short period of time, your experience of it will have changed. That, that unpleasant feeling might have gone to seeing something pleasant. It might have gone to neutral. Yeah. And then it goes back again and changes. You know, all this sort of thing. So the Buddha is saying, this is not a theory about the self. This is the what is going on if you pay attention to it. And so will is something we can see. We know it's there. Volition is something there. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you say that... Um because we are driven by complexes a lot of the time, some of us anyway, um, would they be scanners? Complexes, no, they would be, they would be if you're talking about um, kind of psychological complexes, and that, they would be effectively uh, sankharas. Sankara. Yeah, that's right. They would be within the, the kanda of the sankharas, sankara kanda. Because they are, if you like, complexes by their very nature, are formed over a period of time, say phobias. 
as a, you know, a particular type of complex. A phobia is, if you like, a, a pattern which might have had a use at some point in time that has become somehow solidified and concretized, yeah, and can often extend out into other areas and interact with other complexes. Yeah, so in a way, it's, it's, um, it's a habit formation. Is that also like the instincts? The instinctive fear of water or heights or yeah, some 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 of those would be some of those would be sankaras. Now, not what is being said is that not all sankaras are bad at all. Some of them are very useful. Some of them are actually good. Um, you know, some of them are, are just kind of morally, ethically neutral that we have. But what the sankaras represent, in a way, let's just take it over this lifetime, is the whole pattern of habits and formations that we've, if you like, um, sedimented with our ways of dealing with life. You know, that, even putting it that way makes it sound simplistic. But they are, they are sedimented ways of dealing with life. Some of them good, some of them bad, and some of them neutral. Because it's sangsara, a lot of them are simply bad habits. You know, that's you know, really what it is. And some of those will be formations. Now, even using the word form- uh, um, complexes actually makes me want to introduce another distinction, which is, which is that in a sense, um, and often complexes are seen certainly within psychodynamic psychology and Freudianism and things like that as being associated with the unconscious. Now, Buddhism does, doesn't deny that there's things unconscious going on. The whole job of Buddhist practice, and particularly meditational practice, is to make that which is unconscious conscious. So it doesn't catch you out any longer. It doesn't drive you in particular ways. Yeah. So it's actually looking even at, say, for example, unconscious intentions. Yeah. Looking at what the intentions are behind what you're doing very closely. Becoming, learning to become aware. So effectively, something actually Freud denied, is, is you're trying to actually tip out the whole of the contents of the unconscious yeah, and make it conscious. Because otherwise, there's always going to be something which is driving you in a way that you might not want. Yeah. And that would be part of the complexes of all things. Um, where does the, the original face they talk about in Zen, where does that fit into? Is that a reference to the system? To the system, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Zen doesn't have the kind of whole depth philosophy and psychology of early Buddhism because it, it's a different culture. You know, it's, you know, Indians loved, and you probably gathered them. You know, Buddhists, in particular, Indian Buddhists, are kind of list fetishists. <laughs> you know, a number fetishists. They like these lists and numbers because they had this very analytic mind. Whereas I think. Um, Japanese and Chinese culture had a much more kind of practical orientation. Not to say that, of course, those lists and stuff aren't practical in their real, you know, what they're aiming at. But something like that was is certainly a poeticized way of talking about the system. Yeah. I was very interested um, about um, you saying nirvana is a is a, um, a process, a dependent process. Mm-hmm. How does that square with the Pali Canon use of synonyms like the deathless and the unconditioned? Yeah, that's a very good one. Um, in fact, what <laughs> that particular passage, which is a very, very famous passage, it's from the Itavutika, which again is part of the same part of the canon that this belongs to, uh, the Sutta Nipata. What is really what the really Buddha is really talking about is that 
when we're talking about the unconditioned is that it's not conditioned by the same factors that condition sangsara. That's what he's talking about. It's not talking about a self-sustained metaphysical state. But it's simply a state which is different completely. Death is um, a component of the ordinary state because because there's flux within it within the ordinary sangsaric state, there's continual flux. We're constantly, if you like, being born and dying, and being born and dying, and being born and dying. So for one moment I can be good, and the next moment I can really be bad. And the next moment I can be good again. And, you know, we, and we all do this, don't we? We all vacillate through our lives uh, in this you know, flux. Now what it's saying is deathless, is that the good, when it's born in the Nibbanic state, doesn't change. Because there is nothing to undermine it any longer. So it's the complete eradication of any unwholesome factors which would undermine, for example, generosity, kindness, and insight. And that's really what's being... I mean, I could speak a lot longer about it, but that's basically what's being indicated in that. It's not saying there is this metaphysical state which is deathless and unconditioned is really reflecting it back against the sangsaric state. Yeah. Is Nibbana an experience? Well, again, the Buddhist tradition kind of vacillates a little bit about that. In a way it is, yes. I personally think it is. Um... I mean, let me just say a couple of words about the word nibbana. I know you probably know them, Julian. But I mean, the word nibbana in 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 Pali and Sanskrit, it's what technically is known as an intransitive verb in Pali, which means it doesn't move from a subject to an object. The word nibbana literally means literally means gone out. That's what it means. It means that all of the things, the the fires of greed, aversion and delusion which drive the sangsaric condition, all the fuel, in other words, has been burnt up. And it literally means, I mean, this is why it's often referred to as cooling and quenching and all of these lovely ideas that you're cooled by this, that the, the, the desire is quenched within it, that these have literally gone out, the fires that sustain it. Uh, and in that nibbanaing process, because nibbanaing is also a process, it's a way of being in this world. You know, and just to reiterate what I was saying earlier on, it's it's a way of being, which is which is has as its basis generosity, kindness, and insight into the way things are. It's the flip side of the three poisons, or the three fires, as it's often referred to. Yeah. So actually. This is why in later um, Buddhist thought, for example, that Nagarjuna, who's one of the great um, philosophers around the beginning of the second century, says that sangsara and nirvana are the same thing. So this is sangsara and it's nirvana. But, of course, it's sangsara or nirvana dependent on the mental states that you bring to it. Now, because our mental states are infected, if you like, by the poisons, to use that 
particular metaphor that's used here, um, then all of our psychology is dominated by those unwholesome factors. Not entirely, because obviously there is the good side. That's within our, it's within the system again, all the good elements within it, except mostly to the forefront of the unwholesome elements. And that is why it's sangsaring. We're caught and trapped within habits of repetition, dominated by that psychology. We're addicted to certain forms of behaviour. We're addicted, you know, craving is, you know, what does the Buddha say in the the ennobling truth, the first ennobling truth and the second ennobling truth, there is dukkha and there's an immediately identifiable cause to it, which is craving. So that's the kind of, that's where we're caught. Now, in the Nibbanaing experience, and it is an experience, because nobody is saying the Buddha's walking around the world teaching, giving all this advice to people from a nothingness, He's doing it from an experience. And it says, you know, the Buddha comes and teaches out of, you know, compassion and care for the world. That sounds to me like an experience. (laughs) So likewise, so if the three poisons can be transformed, likewise, presumably, in Nibbana, then the skandhas don't disappear. They're purified. They're purified, yeah. So hence the Buddha can go on teaching. That's right. So there's that Nibbana-ing in life. People often see Nibbana as some kind of distant, distant goal, you know, kind of the metaphysical Buddhist heaven that you have to reach and aspire to and all that stuff. And it's really practical. You know, I mean, that's what I find so heartening about the early tradition is you know, that the Buddha is saying, look, if you really work at this, and if you don't have it as a hobby, <laughs> I joke about it, but if you don't have it as a kind of hobby and really work at it, you'll get it. You'll get it. And that's why you have these examples you know, of people becoming arahats in the Buddha's lifetime. Yeah. Obviously, they had the you know, charismatic presence of a, of a great teacher to help them along the way, but... <laughs> like us. <laughs> no! Like... <laughs> I think it's time to go. <laughs> Well, actually, the term that's used... Occasionally, actually, you find in the text the word bad used, but generally, mostly, the words that are used are kusala and akusala. Kusala is wholesome. Mm. And what is wholesome lessens dukkha. Mm. 
akusala, unwholesome, that which increases dukkha in this world. But occasionally you do find the word bad being used. I mean, the Buddha just goes, it's bad. <laughs> it doesn't mince his words. But mostly it's, it's these two words that are used, which actually, actually take the sting out of it, if you really hear them that way. Because it's saying, you know, as you can see, wholesome and unwholesome, kusala, akusala, again, it's only, you know, in the Pali, it's only down to that one little vowel sound. You know, in other words, what could have been wholesome if it becomes a habit can end up being really unwholesome mm. yeah. here. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Occasionally you'll find it translated as unskillful and skillful, which actually is not terribly good, but you know, if you're happier working with that, that can even work for this. You know, something that could have been skillful at one time, but once it becomes a, a pattern of dealing with things, yeah. you know, for example, it might be very well given human relationships sometimes to really protect yourself and cut yourself off to protect yourself in a particular, say, abusive situation. But when it gets sedimented in a habit and that's the way you deal with everybody, then that, what was skillful, has now become extremely unskillful and it produces dukkha for you. And that really is what, what is the case. And it's, you know, that is the litmus test for all of these teachings, is that which is producing dukkha and that which is lessening dukkha in this world. Yeah. And given the ubiquity, the pervasiveness of dukkha, you know, you want to be involved in trying to to move skillfully. The other the other aspect about the unwholesome, as opposed to the wholesome, is is the unwholesome also tends to be reactive, whereas the wholesome tends to be active. Yeah. Yeah, so, in other words, we most for the most part are engaged in a series of reactions towards life rather than actions. So immediately you see something, I react to it. In fact, that's actually a lot of what the psychology of desire is. It's reaction. There is the beautiful thing. I want it. I desire it. I need it. And all the story I tell myself about why I need it and why I want it and why it's going to make me happy and all of that stuff that goes on. But... Coming back to your original point, it's actually learning to appreciate that. And I think you know, to calling it wholesome and unwholesome takes a sting out of it and allows us to, to hold it in a much, much more respectful way than simple, simply dividing it up into good and bad. So just, just one last thing on that. How far, how useful is it, that, do you think, to, to try and understand some, our, have our, our unwholesome habits because it will make it easier to apply meta and, and allow change. Losing the voice again. Well, it's it's more it's more. I mean, understand. I'm not quite following what you mean, but I'll make a stab at it here. Which is, you know, if you mean by analysing, then that's not recommended. If you mean by just simply opening yourself up to what is there and allowing it to be seen, mm-hmm. that is what is meant within it. You know, so you're kind of not, and you know, for example. And particularly in the West, I think we've got this ter- we've got this analytic tradition which says, you know, if I've got this bad habit or the bad formation, I must have developed it over here. Therefore, I shall go back and look at where it arose from and all the sort. You know, it can never change anything. Sometimes you, know, you get you get stuck and admired in the past, whereas actually what you experience is whatever it is in this moment. And if you can really experience it in this moment, whatever that unwholesome thing is, whatever it is then there is a chance of letting it go. Yeah. But letting it go with love. 
you know, with kindness and with respect, not just simply, I don't want to know. Well, simply, it means connecting a little bit again with Indian past. The idea in ancient India was, and actually it was partly there in some forms of Western thought as well for a while, but the idea in ancient India was, was there was this thing called Brahman, and the very nature of Brahman was it was conscious. It was described as pure consciousness in the ancient texts. Um... And the nature of the Atman was pure consciousness as well. And the Buddha is saying, I don't find any such thing as pure consciousness. When I think of consciousness or when I'm examining consciousness in my experience, it's always consciousness of something. Now, that obviously is consciousness of this and this and the world and yourselves and everything else. But it can also be consciousness of a hope a fear, a wish. And it's like trying to say, the Buddha's trying to get you to see that within your experience there is not just consciousness floating around. It's always there with an object. That's what's being meant. And it's a kind of counterbalance to the Upanishadic idea that there was sort of a huge, vast consciousness which didn't have anything as its object within it. Now, in terms of the Kanda system, of the way of breaking it down, well, what, is the, what is consciousness conscious of? Well, it's conscious of physical form and all that's going on in the physical form. It's conscious of feelings. It's conscious of all that discrimination and memory and language and all the elements we're using. And it's also conscious of all my desires and habits within it. Can it never be conscious just of itself? No. No. There's not that idea within what it's thought. Consciousness is never just conscious of itself. <laughs> but it would take a longer story in this time of night <laughs> to go into that one. Time? No. <laughs> I'm just looking at the weary faces around me. <laughs> Look, what you can say, That's right. Well, things are there, yeah. but consciousness must have an object. Exactly. So it's yeah. not... Because I thought it was um, something like co-arising, so then that would go into that... Um, no, I, I said it was a dependent arising, not a co-arising. That's what, that's what confused me. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Consciousness depends on something else for its existence. Okay. Yeah. However, I mean, one, if you want to take that just a little further, that idea is that consciousness also, by its very nature, is free, by its very nature. Yet, part of the fear that in, drives us in our ordinary existence is, if you like, the fear of the freedom of consciousness. Yeah. Isn't to a degree, but it's not just existentialism because there's a whole load of other stuff in there as well. 
but it's, it has close affinities to that. It has that close affinities? The idea of, you know, for example, of one of the ways that we suffer, for example, is trying to negate freedom and trying to turn ourselves into substances, as opposed to, for example, selvings. We'd much easier be a self, despite all the trouble of holding ourselves together in that way. We'd much rather be like an object. We'd much rather search for certainty and lack of change than to accept that we're changing phenomena. Now, all that has resonances with some forms of existentialism, but it's not just existentialism. You know, because existentialism, unfortunately, is rather pessimistic in the end about what you can do about it. Whereas Buddhism, um, I hate that term Buddhism, but <laughs> the, the Buddha Dharma is much more optimistic in that we can affect change, that we can change that system, that system which we call mind. And the whole history of this tradition, no matter whether it's Zen or whether it's Theravada or whatever, is about transformation of mind. Not good enough. <laughs> Few marks for effort. <laughs> You're looking all rather weary. Shall I let you rest now? <laughs> just a quick. Any more? Any more quick questions? Perhaps we draw it to conclusion. Can I just ask it? Um, <laughs> when you talk about nirvana. In- how, what happens when a, a Zen Roshi or a Chan Roshi jumps into in so-called enlightenment, has a Kensho or a... Satori, yeah. Satori. Mm. Um, does he drop all that stuff that he's been hoping to, you know, mm. to work with and he has an enlightenment experience? Is, is he purified? Not, you no. still have to work. It still has to work. What, what you're doing is getting a glimpse of it. The story-type experience, understood from the model, say, of early Buddhism, would be the dropping away for minutes, hours, however long the story experience lasts, of all the stuff that normally conditions us. But because they're still there within the psyche, they reassert themselves. And therefore, you come back to ordinary experience, ordinary sangsaric experience. So there is a way of explaining it on the model of early Buddhism. It's you know, and actually, even to get those satori experiences, a lot of hard work is involved, just as there is as actually as there is in early Buddhism to get that. Now, you know, there are indicators on the way. I think there are indicators. You know, it's like sudden flashes of insight that you can have after a lot of meditative experience. When all everything becomes clear, absolutely perspicuous. But then all that stuff, all that sansaric stuff reasserts itself again. But that sounds to like um, the, the, the argument in Chan and Zen about sudden and gradual yeah. is really a false one. Yeah, I think it's a false one, actually. Yeah, and that's my own particular position on it. I think it's complete false. Because even in the traditions I'm much more familiar with, such as some of the Tibetan and Indian traditions, where they have this argument about sudden or gradual, you know, Mahamudra tradition, the Dzogchen tradition, they all have to go through absolutely endlessly intense experience 
of the basics. So, for example, just take the Mahamudra tradition, which is, again, one of these sudden enlightenment schools which are held out. Well, you have, what do you have to start with? You have Samatha or Shamatha Mahamudra. <laughs> then it's followed by Vipassana Mahamudra. You know, in other words, you're still working your way through the same things everybody has to work their way through in some way. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing sudden about it whatsoever. <laughs> so it's both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a kind of spurious argument, personally, I feel, that's dominated the history of a lot of Buddhism, this sudden gradual. And most of it's about trying to claim that your school is better than the other one. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of politics actually involved in all this, and I won't want to get into that between the different schools of Buddhism. Most of them, most of the true practitioners within any of these have had to work really hard. Is it in the, um, the Pali Canon descriptions of Because I've never come across something that I haven't read all of it. No, you find, you find elements with, of it within the Abhidhamma, not Satori, but they'll talk about similar experiences. But it's not in the it, Well, it's, it's systematised out of the Nikayas. Well, what, what the Abhidhamma does, it takes all of the terminology of the Nikayas, strips away the, the scene, if you like, where it takes place with the questioner and the questions and everything else, and puts those elements together into a system. You know, so it makes room, for example, for insight experiences, such as that deep insight experience. Stream Pardon? Stream, Stream entry, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, once returners and all this sort of stuff. All of these are experiences. You know, when stuff starts to drop away for you to, you know, to get to that position. So no one, no one came to the Buddha and said, I've had this amazing experience? No, not that I've ever encountered. I've been through the Pali Canon pretty thoroughly. So. Now, a lot of Hindus come to him and say, I've had this experience, and say, you're just fooling yourself. <laughs> Okay, we will draw it to a conclusion now. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.